Thank you guys so much. That was awesome. It was beautiful. And there's something about Christmas music, I think that's different than any other kind of music, right? And I was not raised in church, but I'm still sentimental about Christmas music. And even though when I first began to attend church, I couldn't sing any of the songs. I didn't know a lot of the hymns. I didn't know a lot of the, uh, you know, the, even the, the, this uh, youth group, the, some of the songs that were familiar and are cliche now that you kind of, you know, would, would maybe smile about. I didn't know any of those songs, and so I had to kind of figure that out. But I knew Christmas music. I don't know where I picked that up. Maybe at school, because back then it was okay um, to sing about Christmas at Christmas time. I know, we were wild, we were crazy, but um, there's something about that. I remember stepping out of a party one Christmas Eve, really before I was walking with the Lord, and um, stood out in the front yard, and it, uh, it was just cold, and inside they were singing. And it's just one of those moments where you, you just stopped and listened. And some of those songs you'll hear tonight, and uh, I think they're going to bless you. And you're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be a fun time, too, uh, because there's just something about uh, Christmas music. And, it, and it's not very threatening. You know, you feel like you can invite people who may not ordinarily feel comfortable or, uh, you know, your neighbor, your coworker who uh, doesn't like to go to church a whole lot. This is something you can, you can say, hey, I want you to hear this, these songs. Now, a lot of the songs will be familiar and some will be kind of new to us. Uh, and most of us probably could sing uh, a lot of Christmas music. But, you know, there's, there's some songs that are so old and they go back so far that they've become unfamiliar with us. And some of these songs, particularly four of these that I'm going to mention over the next couple of weeks, are uh, recorded in the Bible as being sung by people surrounding the birth of Jesus that aren't sung very much at all now, at least in our culture. In other places, particularly in Europe, there are churches who sing these songs, not just around Christmas time, but every, check it out, every day. They sing these songs every day. That's how strong they are. But we're detached from those. Um, the angels sang a song uh, to the shepherds, and we know part of that song, you know, that says, and on earth, peace, and goodwill toward men. Mary sang a song to God after she got over this shocking news that she's this teenage girl who's about to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Uh, Simeon sang a song that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, actually on Christmas Day. And then there's this one other guy. His name is Zechariah. And Zechariah had a song. He had a song of faith. Zechariah was an, an elderly priest who sang after he was visited by an angel. Now, this is not like a musical. It's not like going to Broadway and everybody's talking and then all of a sudden they would just burst into song and begin to dance or anything and Zechariah, you know, and start doing that. It wasn't exactly like that. Uh, but it was in this context, in this event that happened, that the ancient church took these words and they created songs. And these are called canticles. And they go back almost to the beginning of our history together as followers of Jesus. Let me give you a little background uh, just to reach back in, into that history uh, about four centuries before the birth of Christ. The Old Testament ends with this mysterious phrase. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this. This is in Zechariah, I mean, excuse me, in Malachi chapter 4 in verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi says this, and then, just like that, the Old Testament's over. It ends. It comes to a close right there. And that's a little confusing. You, you look at that and you think, well, that's kind of cryptic, you know, and, and Malachi just says this. I don't understand what he means. Why would you end something that way? Have you ever seen a movie where at the end of it, it's not everything's wrapped up? Particularly the adventure movies, you know, like a Spider-Man movie or I'm trying to think of like a Harry Potter movie or something where you kind of know, yeah, there's going to be another one. You just get that feeling, you know. At James Bond movie, you think, okay, I doubt this. After this, he went into retirement and, you know, he lived a quiet life out somewhere in the countryside of England. No, you know he's coming back with another adventure. And by the way, he is either the world's greatest spy or he's really, he's this guy who gets caught on every mission he goes on. Yeah. Well, here we have this end to the Old Testament. And you don't end it like that unless, unless you're planning a sequel. Unless you know that there's more to follow. Now, Elijah... Elijah was probably, I guess he's the most famous of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, I like Elijah. Uh, he, was, he was just relentless in calling people, you know, to turn away from their sins, to turn toward the one true God. And this guy was fearless. He would stand up in front of anybody, whether somebody agreed with him, and go, yeah, I'm so glad you're on board with that because this is my message. I really feel like this is what God wants me to say. If they were evil and didn't like that, Elijah didn't care. He would bring it anyway. Uh, he would he would just just continue to hang away uh, at that. Am I okay? And the thing I liked about him too is, is that he never tried to make it nice. You know, well, hey guys, come on, why don't you just love God and stop stop doing? That? He didn't talk like that. He he didn't sugarcoat anything. He just boom. He just put it out there, and he was he was pretty strong. Now Elijah had died several hundred years before the time of this passage. And in the book of Malachi, we're not sure what's going on. And there was speculation back then. People would try to figure it out. Is he talking about reincarnation? Did Elijah die? Or is he coming back? Hey, you know what? Wait a minute. Because there are two guys in the Old Testament. Enoch, the Bible says, walked with God and was no more. Didn't experience this physical death. And Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind. And they think, well, maybe Elijah's still alive somewhere. God's just kind of put him away, kept him alive. And at the right moment, he's going to bring Elijah back onto the scene. And it's really going to be him. It's the actual guy. Other people said, I don't think it's going to be Elijah. It's going to be Elijah-like guy. It's going to be, uh, this is a metaphor. And it's going to be somebody in his spirit. And it's going to be, he kind of typifies you know, it's kind of like we would say, we need another Babe Ruth, or we need another... We don't need, you know, him. We don't need... You know, you understand, understand what I'm saying? Uh, as well. But then it goes into this time of silence. And this silence lasted 400 years. You have the Old Testament, and you have the New Testament. 
And in between those, there's this period of time, we call that the intertestament period, and it lasted for 400 years. I mean, that's a long time. That's longer than our country has even been in existence. Silence. God was just quiet. And sometimes we don't know what to do with Silence. It makes you feel anxious when things get quiet. About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to be a part of 150 group uh, of speakers. I was not a speaker. I was incognito. I'm a pastor from Knoxville, Tennessee. They won't know. I can act speakery. Uh, And there were people in radio and television and and a movie, folks, and they said, we're bringing in this speech coach. We've got him for three hours. He's incredibly expensive, uh, and he never goes to anything. The week before he met with us, uh, he had coached uh, Brad Pitt for an upcoming role in a movie that he was in at that time, and it was $3,000 an hour, and you go to his house. He has a house in London and a house here in the U.S. in Los Angeles, and, uh, and, and Brad Pitt called and said, hey, can we, I, w- I want you to coach me. He goes, well, come to my house at my convenience, and I'll meet with you, and this is what it cost. Um, I didn't have to pay that, uh, but I went, and I'm, I'm kind of intimidated because everybody's so pretty, and everybody's so, and I'm just like, hey! And, and everybody that, that met me said, where are you from? They all, you know, nobody's, like, I don't know why they think that I talk funny because I don't talk funny. Uh, <laughs> I talk right, that's what I'm saying. Uh, so anyway, they said, we're, you know, you're, you're Southern. I go, you think? <laughs> oh, you know, so, that, so the guy gets me up there. And what he's illustrating is there are nine different types of silence used in speech. And I thought, I'm using one of them right now. I had no clue. And I had memorized this little thing everybody had to that we're supposed to say. And he goes, okay, go ahead and say your part. So I start to say it, and I get to a place, and I don't remember. I'm looking at those people, and I'm just, you ever had that? You ever just, fr- I, I know how Perry felt in that debate. I know how people, I just, I think... We're, I don't know my name. I don't know who I am. And, and they're all looking at me, and they're thinking I'm so quaint and everything because I'm so Southern. And, you know, I'm just... But I don't remember what to say, and I just stand there, and it gets really quiet. Finally, it comes to me. And you can see everybody's leaning further and further, and they've memorized... Some of them have memorized this same piece, so they're knowing it. And you can see people silently going, they're saying it, they're, because they're all nervous too. Finally, it comes to me. I say it, and I get through it, and I start to go back to my seat, and the guy calls me over, puts his hand on my shoulder, and goes, that was brilliant. That was a brilliant use of silence. We were all so engaged. And I go, yeah, well, you know, that's just <laughs> the way I roll, the way I speak, you know. That's what I'm saying. You know, and I, thank you all, you know. Um, I was never so glad to sit down in my seat, and I just sat there and thought, oh, the, the, the odds of me having to ever get up again in front of this group are just minimal, and I'm, I'm done with that. But it was this silence. And you know what that's like, right? When things just get quiet. Have you ever been in a small group praying, and it gets around to somebody, and they don't pray? And so you squeeze their hand, or you nudge them, or you're like, dude, it's your turn. Pray something. Or have it ever come around to you and you don't know what to pray? Lord. And I find that when people don't know what to pray, they say God's name a lot. So, Father, God, we thank you, Father. 
God help us, Lord. You know, we just keep, <laughs> we just keep saying this night uh, because we're not real sure. And we don't want silence. You know, it, it makes people uncomfortable when it's quiet. And seconds tick by like minutes and it can feel like an eternity. Maybe there have been times in your life when you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and nothing happens. And you don't feel like God's listening. Or if he's listening, he's not saying anything back. And he's, it's like there's nothing going on. And so you pray some more and you pray some more. And God's just quiet. I've gone through seasons of my life where the Lord seems awfully silent. And there are these moments when I think, God, I just need you to say anything. Say hi. Say, just let me know you're there. And he will choose to remain quiet. This is what God did during this time. For God to be silent, I understand, but for 400 years... Lord, don't you think that's kind of maximum? I mean, that's, that's taking it a little far. I mean, generations of people were, were born and they lived their lives and they died without ever hearing a fresh word from God. Everything they had, they'd gotten from another generation. And true, Israel had, the, you know, they had the law of Moses and they had the words of the prophets and all of that was as rock solid as it has ever been But actually, only a few people even tried to figure that out or understand what those old words were about and the promises of God, were they real, they're for us. You know, somebody right in the middle of this said, yeah, but that's been like a couple of hundred years. I don't even, I wasn't even born, and it doesn't seem to be happening. And it's just quiet after quiet after quiet. And generations go by. Only a few were willing to wait their entire lives in hopes of hearing this necessary word from God. And that's our perspective. And that's really mostly the way I've thought about this this scripture and this idea and this period of time when I look at that and I think, 400 years, it's a long time. But then I began to look at it with a different view. When you think about this and try to envision it from God's perspective... God is silent, and from a human perspective, we are not good with that. We, we, we don't like silence, and we, we fill up the room. We fill in gaps with, with our speech, and we say things, and we, uh, we even fill up uh, those moments with noise. You know, we've always got something kind of going in the background. But this doesn't mean it's that way on God's side. It doesn't mean that God had stopped working on the behalf of humans. God was up to something. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He said, But when the fullness of time had come, that's an important little phrase. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive this adoption as sons as daughters, as God's children. But it had to happen in the fullness, in the completeness of time. God was right on track. 
He, he, he never wavered. He never sped up too fast. He never lagged too far behind. He was always right where he needed to be with his plan. God acted when the time had fully come, when everything was ready, everything's prepared. You know, on Thanksgiving, we had our, our meal at, at dinner this year, and I, and I looked at this spread that Kathy cooked, and I thought, how in the world? Because like the, the mornings, some Saturday mornings, and I'll do breakfast, and I think, I want the pancakes to be hot and ready the same time as the eggs and the, and the bacon or fake bacon that we eat that... It's not even real bacon. The first time my children ever went for a holiday to my mom's house and she served bacon, they ate it and said, what is this? And she said, bacon. They said, this isn't bacon. She goes, oh, this is bacon. <laughs> what we eat is these little thin paper wafer turkey bacon things. And, and um, they were delighted and they've been spoiled ever since. And Kathy has this meal and I think, how, did you do, how do you get everything ready? She goes, well, I didn't cook at all like an hour ago. I cooked this dish and I put it away so I could heat it back up again and, and get it ready. And, you know, everything was almost ready, and then it could all be ready at once. That's what God's doing. He's doing everything behind the scenes. He's setting the world stage for the coming of the Savior. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what God was doing, how busy he was behind the scenes. For instance, from 356 to 323, God raised up and brought into power this man known as Alexander the Great. You've probably studied him in world history, and you remember some things about this amazing young man. Uh, I think he only lived to his, like maybe his mid-30s when he reached complete power, and he ruled the known world. He was just, a, just an amazing, ambitious person, um, and, and had brought the world to to this unity that it had never known before. He had taken his army all around this Mediterranean region, and he set up cities and libraries uh, for the sole purpose of spreading Greek culture and Greek language. I mean, he just hammered at this. It was against the law. You had to speak it. You had to write it. You had to learn it. You had to stop doing things that way and start doing things the Greek way. I mean, he was relentless, and he just kept, kept doing that and doing that and doing that until it spread, and, and culture became inundated with this Greekness so that by the time that Rome came to power, Greek was the language of commerce. Greek was the language of education. Whatever you spoke in your hometown, that's awesome, but you also needed to know Greek. It was the language that would get you by. And this influence led to the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, uh, what, what we call today the Septuagint. And for the first time, Gentiles were able to read uh, and become acquainted with the principles of Judaism and, and, and Jewish people could read not only in Hebrew and Aramaic, but they could read it in Greek. It was, it was there. It was extremely accurate. And, and it just kind of laid over the top of culture. This is why I spent three years of my life studying Greek. I felt like this is the key language. This is the language that God used to unite and to change the world. And I think after studying it, and, and those of you who know me well know I'm really not that great at it, uh, but just the little that I know, I know this. That it's, it's, it's amazingly complex and specific in the way that it expresses itself. It is 
I think, the most perfect language ever invented to be able to share complete thoughts with accuracy and with precision. And God waited. And God allowed Alexander and others to build into the culture this reliance on this one language that everybody would be able to understand. That's one of the ways that I think. And Alexander didn't know he's on this divine mission. You know, I mean, he's an ambitious guy. And although he didn't personally know the, the one true God, uh, in this silence and through him, God was preparing the world for Christmas. And here's another example. When Rome came to power, one of the lasting legacies uh, that, that is still there to this day it was a system of roads going everywhere in the empire. And you've heard the saying, probably, all roads lead to Rome. Well, this is where that began, because it was literally true. Along with this unified empire, uh, where people could speak and understand one another for the very first time in history, everybody could talk to everybody, there was this unprecedented freedom to move about in the Roman province from one place to another, from this city to this area. Uh, that had never been done before. So now we could go. Paul could do missionary journeys. We could travel. We could, you know, all of these things could take place. God was preparing the world for Christmas as fast as he could. Now, I'm that generation that remembers the gradual shift um, from traveling on back roads to using an interstate system. And some of you have always known that, and I think we take for granted how convenient that is. Do some of you remember traveling to Grandma's house for Christmas and there wasn't an I-40? There wasn't, you know, a 75? And it just took forever. I have driven in 22 hours <laughs> from East Arizona to Tennessee, stopping for and sandwiches. I was like the guy in Vanishing Point. I was just <laughs> but I did that. I never took a turn. I stayed on one road the entire time, I-40. You can drive from here to southern Florida and never take a turn. You get on one road, 75 south. It'll take you all the way. You see, we're kind of used to that, but this was unheard of in the ancient world. So now people could speak, and they could travel, and the gospel could be spread. I mean, isn't that amazing? what a change of perspective can bring. To the Jewish nation, it looked like God has abandoned us. I think God's forgotten about all those promises he made to us and, and the things he said and all that the prophets warned us about. and It doesn't seem to be happening. But when we change that perspective and we look at it from God's viewpoint, we see that he was very much at work, that God was busy preparing the world, setting the stage, for this greatest work that he would ever do, the giving of his own son, Jesus, in a unique and unbelievable way that nobody saw coming. People tried to figure it out, and they would guess at it, just like we you know, try to guess at the second coming. And, and, and some guys would preach it this way, and others would tell it this way, and some would teach this is how it's going to happen. Nobody got it. Everybody missed it. Let's move ahead to this key text. We're going to look for the next couple of weeks at Luke chapter 1 and, and 2. And today, our reading is really going to focus around verse 5 to 25. It's after this 400 years of silence when everything's ready. It's just right. 
God spoke again. Finally, God spoke again. And this time, through an angel. Now, the word angel, angelos, means a messenger. And this particular messenger uh, had a name, and it was Gabriel. And we'll see later that he's a pretty busy angel himself. And when he spoke, he picked, I love this, he just picked right up where Malachi left off. You know, have you ever watched a television program and they say scenes from last week? You know, and this is where I have to kind of catch you up. Gabriel goes right back. He goes, okay, remember Malachi 400 years ago? We're going to start right there. And let me, let me bring you up to speed on what God's doing now. Zechariah and his wife are going to have a baby. The baby's name will be John. And that baby would be the very one that Malachi had promised would come. He's going to be this powerful, this very influential prophet who would be a lot like, guess who? Elijah. In fact, if you read further into the story about John as a man, he even dressed like Elijah. Nobody wore, you know, camel hair and, you know, those kind of things. He, he brought it back in style. He put this leather belt on. How do you like that? Well, that's weird. Nobody wears that anymore. But he goes, well, I'm going to wear it. I think Elijah wore this. I mean, he just started dressing like his hero. Um, and and he, he, he goes out just like Elijah. He called people to repentance. He called people back to God. And like Elijah, he never minced words. He would just say these things. And you know, his friends around him, maybe he had a little entourage, or maybe he didn't have anybody, but there are those who would know him, and they would think, oh, no, Elijah's getting up to speak. Oh, no, what's he going to say? And the same thing with John. They go, John, this time today, why don't you be nice? Why don't you say things in a way? People would listen if you wouldn't get up and, and say it the way you say it. And one day he gets up in that kind of context and, and there's all the religious leaders of that community who were very powerful. There was no separation of church and state. It was all mixed and these were the guys. These were the big guns. And John looks out at him and says, you brood of vipers. And like, you didn't just do that. You didn't just call the leaders. Yeah, I call them a bunch of snakes. Mm-hmm. You know, he just throws down like that. That's the kind of guy that he was, just like Elijah. As a priest, Zechariah was probably one of the very few people left. I think, I know this is kind of geeky, but I was trying to think, he's a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, he's the only one that still fills the force. He gets it, he understands, and he says these things. Everybody goes, what are you talking about? Only I know. And um, history tells us that he actually wore it. No, he didn't. Um, but he got it. He understood the Old Testament scriptures, and he makes this connection between John and Elijah. He connects the dots. He gets it. But even despite Zechariah's awareness that God is at work, uh, the news that really throws him off that he, he doesn't get, he doesn't see coming, is the angel says, okay, all this, and Zechariah's like, I knew it, I knew it. I told all the guys, all, you know, all my books and everything, my seminars I teach, I'm the only one that got this right. He goes, oh, yeah, and by the way, you guys are going to have a baby. We're going to have a what? <laughs> and he says, oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty big news for him. You know, he's, he's in, well into his 401K. I mean, he's an older guy. He, that, that's, that's then, this is now, and that, that's past. And as a priest, he kind of understood, I need to trust what the Lord says. But as a man, he's going, mm, don't see that one. I don't understand that. Even though there are a couple of instances in the Bible uh, where God grants children 
to those who are past childbearing age. He did it with Abraham and Sarah. Maybe, maybe Zachary said, I remember Abraham. You know, they, they had a baby. So, but we can't blame him for asking in verse 18. I, I love this. And maybe when God has spoken to you, when he finally breaks his silence and he speaks, maybe you have questions too. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? <laughs> how, shall, how shall I know this? It sounds like Oaken, doesn't it, the way he would talk. Uh, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That is so delicate. I love that. I'm old and my wife, well, she's no spring chicken either. <laughs> she's advanced in years. I'm just old. He says, I, I, I'm old. And he's saying, are you sure about this? Could you check your notes? Make sure you're still, you know, on the script because maybe that part was for somebody else. Maybe you missed, you know, I, I don't know if that's right. In response to that, the angel says, from now until that time, you're going to be silent. Silence again. A preacher who couldn't talk. Don't say it. Don't even think that. Um, <laughs> he's not able to speak until the day that this happens. He says, because you didn't believe my words, I'm just going to show you until the very proper time, and then everything's going to fall into place. I wondered, if Zechariah just says that one little thing and he's being punished? I don't think it was about punishment. I think it was more about, I'm just going to show you. I'm going to show you, and I'm going to use your silence as a preparation for Christmas. Sometimes God says, just be quiet for a minute. Oh, but Lord, I need you to answer this, and I need some more money, or I need my health, or I'm praying this on behalf of something. God says, shh, 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 shh. Zechariah, the only way I think I'm going to get things quiet around you is if I make you be quiet. So Zechariah goes into this time. And I hope this part isn't irreverent, but I don't know what happened after this. The Bible is so um, just gracious in the way that it expresses this next little part. Uh, but I kind of wish it had recorded that first conversation when he gets home. Hey, baby, how's your day? Mm. So what's up? Mm. Maybe because he's a priest, he was able to read and write, and a lot of people couldn't do that. So maybe, you know, around dinner time, he writes her a note, and he passes it over to her, and she reads it, and she says, the angel said, what? And you want to do what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know that's true. Husbands have used much more elaborate things than that. I, I mean, uh, and he gives her that look, and she's like, oh, no, what? He goes, yeah, and he didn't say anything. Uh, though the Bible says... All the Bible says about this is just in two words. I'm sorry, I'll probably hear about that. But in, 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 in Luke, Luke 1, 24, it says, After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. <laughs> That's all. Okay, I love the Bible. <laughs> After this, you know, it's like if you ever teach preschoolers, they raise their hand and go, After what? This. <laughs> Kathy has a student who's very inquisitive, and they're doing Christmas songs, and they got to the line, round yon virgin, and she says, I just know he's going to say, what's a virgin? <laughs> and he's going to go ask your mama. Um, five months, she remains in seclusion. More silence. More seclusion. I guess she's a little self-conscious. You know, she don't want to get out in the neighborhood. They go, are you? No. You're kidding. You're going to have a baby. Zechariah poured over the scriptures trying to figure this out. He, he wants to understand. He spent so much time in prayer, and he's seeking the Lord. 
Because the angel had said that your son's going to have a role in this. So we'll name him John. And if your name's John, your name means gift of God. And John was this gift of God. And that becomes pretty clear. John would obviously be the one Malachi had predicted. He's the one. But he's not just another prophet. Not somebody to go, eh, we've heard that. We've got, you know, and they didn't ignore this guy like all the rest. The more Zechariah was silent, the more and more he thought about that very last thing that the angel said. And he shall make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What'd you say? Did you just say what I think you just said? The Lord? The Lord? Did the angel say the Lord? Are you talking about Messiah? The chosen one? The Savior? My boy's going to tell people about Messiah. At some point, he pulled it all together. At some point, it all became clear. Everything comes into focus for Zechariah. In his silence, God had prepared him to understand the big picture. And he gets it. And I don't know when this was, if it was an epiphany or if it was just a growing awareness every day of, oh, I think I understand. I know what's happening. It's not just a miraculous birth to this elderly couple. At God, you're doing something big and strong and deep. And he picks up the story in verse 57, and he talks about what is next. And how Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, praise be to the Lord. He begins to share these prophecies. He said, you're going to show us mercy. You're going to remember your covenant. You didn't forget about us. All the way back to Abraham, and he talks about that, and he goes forward, and he says, and you, and finally he gets us to son, and you, my son, you, my child, you, John, are going to be called a prophet of the Most High. Do you know how proud he must have been? But you're going to go before the Lord, and you're going to prepare the way for him. You're the one. You're the one. Zechariah saying, it wasn't a lullaby. It was this powerful, this song of faith. Zechariah sang, and not just about his own son, but he sang about this other baby, this other boy who would be born to a distant relative of his wife's. And it's not even until verse 76 that he even addresses his own son, that he even, even mentions him and the role that he's going to play in this event that we would become, that, that we would call Christmas. Little baby John would grow up to be this prophet, and he would be the guy who would prepare the people for this coming king. It's after 400 years without a prophet. The people, they were a little rusty spiritually. He had to wake them up. He had to remind them of the old stories and refresh their memory about these promises. And don't forget that there's a barrier between you and God, and it's sin. And doing something about that to break it apart. And John's life work and his eventual death, it was in him and through him that God served notice to the world that this eternal plan was right on track, that redemption of people was finally at hand. It's this beautiful song. And Zechariah gives several pictures, these ideas that if you hadn't heard it before, you might have missed it. But looking back on it, we think, oh, 
You symbolized our salvation through Christ. In verse 68, he says, you were purchased from slavery. In verse 74, he says, deliverance from danger. In verse 77, he says, it's the forgiveness of a debt. In verse 78, he says, the dawning of a new day. In verse 69, he just comes out and says, it's salvation. I'm going to save you. This was the first song for the first Christmas ever. And the lesson for us, what I want you to walk back out with in a few moments is this. Even when God seems to be, or it's apparent that he's just silent, he is preparing for you and for me Christmas. Not just for the holiday of Christmas, not just getting ready for December 25th, but for the reality, for the substance of what Christmas is. God with us. God with us. Jesus stepping into this this toxic planet full of sin and and the results of that, pure for our salvation. So, when you find yourself in places of silence, it helps to, to read of these others who've gone before you. It helps to remember that even though God didn't make himself evident for 400 years, it didn't mean he wasn't doing anything. He was at work the whole time preparing the way, preparing the way. Here's what I want you to remember. God will redeem the silences in your life. Whether you've been crying out for the salvation of someone you know and love, or the restoration of health for someone or for someone else, or uh, the need to the end of a financial hardship that you've been under, or for just the stress and the strain, the mental part of life that you just wish it would ease up and and God just seems to be quiet, I want you to know, please walk out remembering God is still working. He has not forgotten about you. Even when you don't see evidence of it, even when it feels, God, this is taking 400 years. This is taking you forever to fix me, to fix my problems, to fix my life. God's at work. You just can't let go of that. Don't let go of him. Don't let go of the promises that he gave you. He may be quiet, but he's on the move. This is the essence of what our faith is all about. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 means when it says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction. It's this firm resolution that I hold on to even when I can't see these things, I'm not going to let go. That's what faith is. So this Christmas, right now, in spite of the silence, go home and sing a song of faith. A song like Zacharias. Because God will redeem the silence of your life. 
Would you stand and let's pray? You may be at a moment where you need to re-engage with the Lord. Because he had gotten so quiet, you were tempted to think maybe you didn't hear him right. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe those songs weren't being sung for you. Well, they were, and they still are. This is for you. No matter how quiet God's been in your life, He will use this silence as a time when He is working in your circumstances and in your heart and in your life and your personality to change everything. Trust Him. Give this to Him. Christmas will come. Father, we believe that and we hold to that. And we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for this song of faith that he was willing to boldly sing even after such a long time of quiet. I know there are those in this room who maybe it's been a long time since they heard you or read about you or even prayed. And even now as they begin to pray, you think, I'm not real good at this anymore and it's been a long time. I pray that you would hear, that you would rush into those quiet places and fill our hearts and our lives with yourself as you prepare us for Christmas. And we do that now. We allow you in. We ask that you'd speak to us now. In Jesus' name and for his glory.